You are listening to the Vineyard Nordic podcast. We invite you to join us on the exciting journey of following Jesus and bringing the kingdom of God wherever we go. This episode was recorded at the Vineyard Nordic Summer Camp. This morning, I uh, want to talk to you about something that I, I came out of a conversation I had with Derek Morphew. He's a good friend of mine and a, uh, one of the clearest thinkers in terms of theological and biblical understanding in the Vineyard Movement. As many of you would know him. I'm sure he's been up here in the Nordics. Eh? Has Derek been here? Sure he has. Uh, and he went through a very, very discouraging season. Um, a lot of things that happened that were very discouraging, disturbing to him. And... Um, and we went for a long walk on the beach together as he just said, let me kind of talk with you. Can we engage with some soul talk? And we began to unpack what he'd been through. And he said, you know, it's beginning to, to strike me that what I need to do to get myself out of this hole is to rediscover uh, the historical Jesus. I want to go on an intentional journey of rediscovering the historical Jesus. And he did that. And we talked some more later on. And it's been a fascinating thing for me to, to get a better understanding of what he was actually saying. And the way that I did that was to look back into Scripture and follow the life of a young guy who I think was the first streaker in the Bible. He was a guy who, who comes on the scene in, um, in Luke 22 at the, uh, the Gethsemane experience of Jesus. And remember when they came to arrest Jesus... Uh, and, and then they, they grabbed this young guy that they thought was one of his disciples, and he, was, he had nothing on except a sheet. Uh, and, and as they grabbed him, he, he threw the sheet off and ran away naked. <laughs> Sounds like a summer camp kind of dude. <laughs> More or less. Um, and his name was John Mark. Uh, he actually, it's recorded in Mark's gospel in particular, and he doesn't name himself, but he, he has the courage at least to describe himself. Uh, and a little later, we find him appearing again in uh, some of the, the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas. Um, and they brought, John Mark was with them, and uh, they began to come into some hostility, some opposition. And um, in the process of that, Mark's fears began to come back at him. Uh, and, and, and he be, began to become, I, I guess, anxiety-riddled, uh, having panic attacks, perhaps. I uh, don't know what all went on in his life, but he became so afraid. He said, I can't do this anymore, and he, he wanted to leave um, and, uh, and, and forsook them. Um, and Paul thought to himself, no, I can't have that kind of fear on my team, never again. And uh, they were discussing another trip, and Paul and Barnabas got into conversation, and Barnabas said, we must take Mark. We must take him because we'll help him overcome his fear. We'll help him grow, grow in confidence. And Paul said, there is no way. And the, 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 the discussion between Paul and Barnabas became so intense that they agreed to disagree and actually part company. Uh, in some ways, you might consider that a very sad thing, but if it's done in an adult-to-adult way, where you can be assertive about your viewpoint and you can, you can be non-slanderous in, in the outcome, uh, like they were, uh, they went on, on two different expositions. Um, Paul took Silas and went off again into Asia Minor, um, and Barnabas went and spent this time with John Mark. He took him and spent a couple of years with John Mark, all on his own, and just 
It helped him restore. And this is the thing I want to come to. This is what Mark did in his restoration. I guess under Barnabas' encouragement and tuition, he began to gather, at that point there was no Bible except the Old Testament. He began to gather all the stories that were floating around in Galilee, in Judea, all over the place of the encounters with Jesus and the parables that he had given. And he began to gather these. Uh, biblical uh, scholars today call it the Q sources. Paul, uh, John uh, Mark began to gather what has become known as the Q source in, uh, in, in biblical development. And uh, he gathered these all together and began to write the very first of the three synoptic gospels, the gospel of Mark, his own gospel, which actually was his way of researching the historical Jesus. It was so impactful that Matthew and Luke picked it up and used not only the Q source, but Mark's gospel itself as a basis for their recording. So that's why we have those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are so similar. Because they all are rooted in one man doing battle with his fears through exploring this historical Jesus again. It's something very significant. Jesus is not a feeling. Jesus is a historical, messianic figure in history that has come and lives on today because he rose again. But there's an, a history that secures us. How many of you ever felt today I woke up and I don't feel so saved? Has that ever happened to you? And has that caused you to doubt your salvation? Of course not. We need to know that uh, our faith is rooted. Every time you look at the date, we are reminded that our faith is rooted in an historical event. It's BC and AD, and when you write the date, you're recording the confidence we have because of the historical Jesus, what he, who he was, who, and what he came to do, what he said, and what he continues to say and do in our lives. And uh, interesting, that story didn't end there because in the years to come, Paul writes again and says, come and join me. And he says, and make sure you bring John Mark with you. He will now be helpful me, to me in this work. And this is interesting. While Mark was doing his soul research, Paul was planting churches and writing his letters. So here we have two things happening. The gospel has been given to us from one man's soul journey and the, and the epistles being given to us from another man's missionary journey. And put together, we have the New Testament. Isn't that amazing, huh? It's a wonderful thing. So whatever you're going through, we, God uses this to enable us to comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. And if you, if you work well with the difficulties in your soul in such a way that others can receive the benefit of what you have discovered. And quite frankly, let's go back to Derek Morphew. That's why we receive so much. This man is authentic in his pursuit of Jesus and he actually is. It's a wonderful thing. So Jesus, uh, let's do that today. Let's go back and have a fresh look at sort of title this morning's message, a fresh look at Jesus. And just take you through a couple of cameos of Jesus' life and uh, uh, what, he, what he said. Now, in, in Isaiah, first of all, let me go, in Hebrews 1, we are told that Jesus is the, um, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things um, by his powerful word. Jesus said in John 8, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And uh, in Luke 4, he, he opens his public ministry by turning the scroll uh, of Isaiah, chapter 61, and reading these words. And I'm going to read them to you now. The Spirit of the Lord, the Sovereign Lord, is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted 
to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. For the display of his splendor, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. What a powerful, powerful statement in scripture. And Jesus takes the first part of that scripture, reads it, and then says, Today, I've come as the fulfillment of the scripture. I fulfill the jubilee. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the jubilee for us, which is the release of captives and the bringing of rest uh, to, to, our, to our lives. And we love to hear from him. We love to hear from him. Um, as he continually speaks into our lives and speaks freedom to us, bringing captives into freedom. And John, Jesus' closest disciple, says, you know, there's so much. There's so much to Jesus that we, we don't really fully understand. And he gets in, Gen in Revelation chapter 4, to write about this, and he says, in, in a way, it's like, and John uses these pictures, apocalyptic language. And he, in verse 7, he describes uh, what Jesus looks like to him in terms of four living creatures, each one bringing an emphasis. Like, he says, the first one I saw was like a lion, then like an ox, then like a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. I don't know if it's stretching it too far, but it may well be that these four represent um, the emphases of the different Gospels that we have. If you look at, uh, at the line, Matthew is the Gospel that speaks of royalty, of position, of authority. It's in the end of Matthew's Gospel that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's about regality. It's about his royalty. It's about his, his positional authority and what he's obtained on our behalf. He's the line. If you come to Africa, we'll show you lions. They, there's no dispute about it. They are the king of the jungle. Uh, in the second, he says, like an ox. And that's why in Mark's gospel, we have an emphasis of, on servant leadership. Mark is the one who records Jesus saying, he would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, must become servant and least of all. The way up, it's a strange kingdom, isn't it? Upside down. The way to advancement is down in service. John picked it up also later when he, in John 13, uh, depicted Jesus washing feet. So we, we have the, the face of the ox, which uh, in, again, in our agricultural language, is the one that pulls the plow, the one that works hard, the, the oxen that service us at, Easter, at, the, at this uh, Nordic summer camp, eh? the, the oxen, the volunteers. You're oxen, good oxen. Eh? And then he says that the third one is like a face of a man, and that's Luke, the physician. Luke has recorded so many healings, so much of the, the physicality and this journey and struggle of Jesus. It's Luke that brings out more clearly the, uh, the Gethsemane agony of Jesus. Father, is there any other way? And, he, and, he, and he, uh, he, he, he uses the language of the Psalms in some of that as well. And he leans into that uh, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these words are coming through. And, and uh, Luke brings out the, the humanity of Christ. It's a wonderful thing to see. And then, of course, the face of the eagle is the, uh, is the, the, the spirituality that soars. He that, we that wait on, on the Lord will renew our strength, rise up on wings like eagles. Eh? Uh, David Child was having a prophecy last night, I think, about eagle faith, eh? rising above um, and soaring. And John's gospel helps us to, to see some of that. 
But let's go, let's go to John's Gospel then. In the opening of John's uh, record of Jesus' miraculous actions, in John 2, we have the first of Jesus' uh, miracles, and, and uh, John records it as such. It was on the third day, the wedding at Cana. Jesus and his disciples were there. Uh, when the wine was gone, that's when it was probably a, a, a vineyard wedding. Uh, there was wine present. And uh, when the wine was finished, it was a, it was a crisis. And, and they, um, they came to Mary. Mary went to Jesus and they had this miracle of the turning of the water into wine. And then that whole story is concluded with this statement, verse 11. This of John chapter 2, the first of his miraculous signs. And they use the word signs. Because in, in Scripture, especially in John's Gospel, the miracles of Jesus were signs of the kingdom. They were bringing out nuances of the kingdom, opening windows of understanding to what the kingdom's all about. And in this case, yeah, turning our lives from water and desperation to the wine and the joy and the inbreak of God's provision for us. So there are seven signs. John's records seven particular signs. And uh, the seven signs of John are all attached to the, the miracles of Jesus. And I'm going to run you quickly through this. This is the first one. Uh, he's the joy bringer. That's what he does. He, by his miraculous intervention in our lives, he brings joy. Okay? Second one in John chapter 4, um, where he speaks a, a word of healing um, to, to the official's son who needed to be restored. In John chapter 4, and uh, it also happened in Cana and Galilee, and uh, we, we find him just speaking a word. He's the one who speaks a healing word. Uh, Psalm 107 talks about that. God sends forth his word and heals our diseases. Uh, when we get a word from God, you can be nourished by that. It can, can transform your life. You've got the ingredients of your future wrapped up in the seed of his word. So that's the second sign, is the, the, the word that he speaks and, and, and uh, he did that in a miracle to emphasize it. Then we have that uh, paralytic uh, person, 38 years, not being able to get into the water and, and not being able to get to the place of healing and, and being stuck in John chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda. Um, and Jesus comes and he heals the man. He breaks the pattern of the man's frustration. 38 years long. He's been stuck where he was, and he comes with, with uh, such a powerful breakthrough. We have the, uh, John chapter 6, the, the next sign of the providing for 5,000. Huh? I think we see something of that yet, uh, at, at your summer camp, eh? the providing every day. We were just talking about that. What a challenge to provide all these meals every day. And Jesus and his disciples have this experience, and he, he, um, he takes them through the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, and there's this provision uh, he's a great provider extravaganza and that's what he does in, in, his, in the inbreak of the kingdom he's wanting us to know the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want then we find him also just after that in John 6 after that same miracle another one he walks on the water he walks on the sea and uh, there's a figurative way of interpreting that because the sea especially in the Apocalyptic books like Revelations is, uh, is usually symbolic of the moving masses of humanity and their philosophies. And Jesus walks on top of it. He's above it. He's not succumbed to it. He walks on top of it. Um, he's the faith walker. He's the one who walks, as Paul says in Corinthians 5, 7. He walks by faith and not by sight. He has faith in the Father to provide for him. 
And uh, t- for us the same, helping us to get above our cultural addictions and walk on the sea. As we said the other day, it's fine for the ship to be in the sea, but it's not good for the sea to be in the ship. We must be above it and beyond it because we belong to another kingdom and we're learning a new culture that comes from the kingdom of God. Then there's the other miracle in John 9 of the guy having his sight restored. And Jesus, uh, he does an unorthodox thing. Hey? He takes, he takes uh, mud that he'd made from spit and he slaps it on the guy's eye. Hey? And whether I'm not medically oriented, my wife, she laughs at me when I give medical solutions because uh, she's the nurse. But Jesus, he just had this thing to go and put mud made from spit on the man's eye and, uh, and bring sight. And that's what he still does today for all of us, teaching us to see differently from very ordinary things. Just about uh, three weeks ago, a neighbor called me and said, uh, uh, I know that you're a pastor and uh, I've got this guy working for me, a Kosa man. And, um, but he's, I'm worried about him. He's spending so much time at the Sangomas and uh, people are providing him with muti and and witchcraft to, uh, to, to beat his fears and he, he was riddled with fear and he was spending all his money being wasted with these guys giving him all kinds of fetishes and things to, to calm his fears and um, she said surely there's another way I said let him come so he came and spent uh, an hour with myself and, and uh, Malawi and trainee pastors with me and uh, we talked this guy through and, and he opened his life to Christ and got born again as we talked with him and uh, then I realized he needed, because they live in a very tactile culture and they need help. So I had a recall of Paul and Peter using a shadow or a hanky. I pulled out my handkerchief eh, and I spread it out there and said, we're going to pray over this as, a, as an encouragement for you in your faith. We prayed over the handkerchief, we gave it to him and he tells his employer and she phoned me about a week later and said, you know, this guy's been transformed. Something's happened. And he just needed it was, it was different from the, the mud on the eye. It was a handkerchief in the pocket, eh? <laughs> As a reminder that God's got me. He's got me. And every time I feel the handkerchief, I'm reminded that my fears have been taken by him and he is Lord of all. And I can trust him, eh? So I don't know what spitting an eye would mean for you. Then there's that, that uh, John 11 encounter of Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus. What a great sign of the, of the kingdom. He, Jesus is the grave buster. I love the songs we've been singing about Calvary. It's been beautiful this week. Um, and Jesus just busting out of the grave, starting with Lazarus as a, full, uh, a, a preview of what's going to happen, what is going to happen for him and for all of us as we wait for the great resurrection when we all have renewed bodies. So there we have the seven signs in John of, uh, of the kingdom through Jesus' miracles. And it leads me to think about the, uh, the fact that as the grave buster, as the one who delivers people, he, um, he's called us, as he said at the end of Mark's gospel, those who believe these signs will follow them in my name. And the first thing he says, they will cast out demons. I'd like to just take a few moments to explain to you what we in the vineyard believe about deliverance. And it may not be familiar to many of you, but we do recognize there are three ways of deliverance that uh, have all in some measure, contributed to helping us set people free. The first is what we call the Pentecostal way. It's predominantly used by Pentecostals, which is where you command the demonic out in Jesus' name. And because you have the voice and the, the name of authority, victory is obtained. The demons leave, and we do that in the vineyard. But we do find that it's, 
while it's effective, it's not necessarily sustainably so. We find people come back, oftentimes for a second and a third helping, um, because sometimes seven worse than the first have entered again, and they need to be delivered again. So we find there's a second way that helps us, and it's predominantly practiced in evangelical circles, and that's the, uh, the, the, what we call the evangelical way of deliverance of teaching. So, for instance, if someone is caught up with an injustice and a bitterness is growing on them and, and it's demonizing them, uh, you can cast the demon of bitterness and unforgiveness out. You can. They'll have a moment of relief. Or you can teach them on forgiveness and how it works and truth-telling and absolution. And, and as you teach them about reconciliation and you, and you open them the eyes to the word, because the scripture is a lamp unto our far path and a light to our feet. Eh? As you open the scriptures concerning life issues, deliverance is happening. Some people's finances are in chaos and you can cast uh, the, the demon of financial chaos out in Jesus' name Pentecostally. You can do that. They'll have a, a few hours of relief probably. But the patterns will come back. They've got them into a mess in the first place. Or you can teach them how to manage money better. Godly values, tithing, prioritizing, budgeting, values, and, and practice and integrity. And you teach on these things and, and how they manage their money better. And, and the demons have no place to, to stay. They go. They obtain victory because we taught. And the same thing for marriage. Uh, we talked about sexual purity the other night. When we, we can cast the, the demons of immorality and fornication out, for sure. Or you can teach people how to be pure. How to govern sustainably an intimacy life in your marriage. And how you can wait until marriage. How you can practice purity before marriage. And by so doing, enhance fidelity in marriage. Does that make sense to you? If you can hold back and practice what's the ninth fruit of the Spirit, the little, little finger of self-control, uh, it'll help you in your marriage. It'll help you at least in fidelity, if not in, in fulfillment in the marriage. So when you teach on these things, the demonic of confusion and, and compromise leaves the room. Huh? And people are, are delivered. There's a third way. Let's imagine uh, your kitchen, or not yours, your neighbor's kitchen is full of cockroaches. Because yours doesn't have cockroaches. But you know your neighbor. And she's got cockroaches in his or her kitchen. And uh, you've got to get those cockroaches out. You can come and you can stand at them and shout at them. And they will go back because they're scared of you. They're smaller than you. That's Pentecostal. Or you can turn on the lights. And they will also scatter because cockroaches prefer dark. Or you can clean the kitchen. And destroy the habitat of the cockroaches. So there's no reason for them to stay. That's what we call the pastoral approach to deliverance pastorally dealing with the root issues in people's lives that, uh, that uh, nurture the habitat of evil that keeps recurring for them. Does that make sense, guys? Good. So that guy, Jesus, in Luke 8, he delivers, remember, on the Decapolis, uh, the guy with all his demons, when Jesus just destroyed the income of the pig farmers by chasing the, the demons, giving them permission to go into the pigs, and they all went over the cliff and into the lake. Uh, remember that guy? He was a wild, wild, isolated man. And uh, when Jesus spoke deliverance into his life and released him, the Bible says that he was, he was seated. That's the first thing that happens to us in our salvation. We, we regain a new restfulness. You know you're saved when you're living restfully. That's the first thing. You learn to live restfully. The second thing, he was clothed. He had identity. He had dignity. Uh, he was clothed. Um, and the third thing it says, and he was in his right mind. And in your right mind, you can, have, you can have authentic relationship. When you're in your wrong mind, your pretend mind, 
It's hard to connect. But when you're in your right mind, you can have, come out of isolation into relationship. So we, we see Jesus encouraging us with that also to practice a, a deliverance of, of, of people from darkness and bondages to, to, to light. And that's why he came, to destroy the works of the evil one. He's come to deceive, bind, lock up. Then if we, if we step back a little bit more as we look at the historical Jesus and, and um, the journeys he took people on. Let me just show you some of these journeys as we look at, uh, again, in John's Gospel in particular, but he helped people move from prejudice to humanity. And across this campus, I watch uh, the various cultures come from, from uh, the south to right up in the north and to the east and the west of the Nordics. Um, the mix is fascinating. It's lovely. And the, the camaraderie uh, and the fun that you have together is a very rich thing. I don't think you'd have that if it wasn't for Jesus. There'd be much more animosity and acrimony between you, but God has done something very special. He's moved you like he did um, in, in John, John 4, when he, he, he transformed from uh, the woman who, who comes to Jesus at Jacob's well and says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. And there was a whole lot of prejudices right there, culturally passed on. And uh, because of she engages with Jesus in this conversation over a drink and who he is and what he's offering. And that's how the conversation starts. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. It was ethnic and gender prejudice. But it ends at the end of the conversation. She's saying to her friends, come see a man. Come see a man. You read that in John 4. He moved her from her prejudice to a, a new respect for humanity. And he does that all the time. You, you take... Um, um, John 8, we've spoken about that woman caught in adultery before. From judgment to forgiveness. And there's something very powerful that's released in, in forgiveness where we're celebrating the, the welcoming that grace gives us in our churches. Eh? That's not without, that that's, doesn't imply compromising on the non, non-affirming part, but it does mean we need to emphasize the welcoming because it's the, the welcoming that leans, leans us towards uh, change and transformation. Then we also see um, how he, he moved us in, our, in his changing of the disciples from isolation to community. John 13, he said, I'm giving you a new commandment. It's not a suggestion, it's a commandment. If you love one another as I have loved, people will know that you're my disciples. This is how we do it. We move from our isolation to community. And, and then I also think of at the end of John's gospel of, um, of that time Peter has a meeting with Jesus on the beach. I knew Jesus was actually a South African because they were having a fish fry on the beach. They were brying on the beach and, and Jesus really had the, the fire going and the meat was on the fire and, and he calls Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him three times and he has a threefold restoration corresponding to Peter's threefold betrayal and denial. And uh, Jesus was very, very committed to uh, restoring us from failure to leadership. Some of the best leaders I know have had the most painful, tragic falls in their lives. And in far from being disqualified by the fall, it was the making of them. The university of the fall can grow, can, can grow you and develop you to a place of reputable leadership that uh, is, is, is astounding, completely astounding. So much so that, that creation longs, waits, yearning for a... 
for the fullness of what this could mean for them, not only for you. And we read that in, John, in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read you this one verse and then I'm going to, I'm going to land, this, land this baby. And uh, Romans 8.21 says, Paul writes, uh, creation, creation is longing, he says, itself will be liberated from his bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have nature itself. Fallen humanity is longing for the inbreak of the kingdom because that's the only long-term lasting and true solution to the pain and difficulties of the world in which we live. We need to hear from God again. Amen. What I want to do, just as we wrap it up, I know we've got a fika. I think I found out something since I've been here with you guys, that heaven definitely will be a place of permanent fika. You guys just fika all the time. It's amazing. So I'll prophesy there will be fika in heaven. Even the lion and the lamb will lie down together and enjoy fika together. I don't know what they're going to eat, but... Anyway, I asked a couple of guys to listen to the Lord during this morning's meeting again, just to, to bring a, a, a few seconds of prophetic words on a personal basis. If any of you have any words, would you come up now quickly? I just invite a few that I've walked with. Uh, so nobody comes, you'll go earlier to Fika. Come on, Gita, yes, there's a mic there. Who else had a word? Just come up and join us. If you've got one, come now. Go for it. I don't know who this is specifically for, but while we were worshiping, I sensed um, a very deep sadness, a sorrow. And I, I think maybe there's someone here who's carrying around something that is, is very sorrowful. You're mm. grieving. Maybe you've lost, or maybe you have... Um, Maybe it's a relationship that you've been in that's broken and it's very difficult for you to be here with all the joy going on <laughs> and you're longing to join into the joy and I just feel that God is telling you that he sees you and he does see the sorrow that you're carrying and he wants to relieve you of it. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Gita. Dave, you got something for us? <clears throat> um, I don't have anything personal, but um, during worship I just really had a sense that what God is doing in these nations is that um, he's raising up feminine voices. And um, I, fe- I felt like he's raising up voices of women to bring clarity and truth and freedom and um, to speak authority. And uh, to speak authority in a world that's uh, been dominated by voices of confusion around sexuality and gender. And... Um, you know, that's dominated by a message that keeps women in ca- captivity. And um, I feel that he's not only raising up feminine freedom fighters, but he's raising up women who are going to be mothers. Mm. Not only women who are going to be activists, but women who are going to be mothers and mother other young women through pain into destiny and freedom. Mm. And um, I know that Scandinavia is a pioneer of gender equality, but I really felt like there's something on the church in these nations to really raise women up and to really just bring a model of what heavenly femininity and heavenly masculinity look like. Mm. 
mm. so that people can come into true freedom. Mm. Sure. So if that, I don't know if we can, Dave, but if that resonates with you, if you're a, if you're a lady and you just feel like um, there's something that God's speaking on you to, to rise up with a voice that may have been suppressed, um, we just want to pray for you. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that in a moment. Uh, let's just hear any other words. Uh, you got something here, sir? I'll just... Um, I have a word for... Um, there's a woman back here with glasses. You're sitting uh, right next to... The, yes, you. Uh, I just got a word from you, uh, for you, I think. Um, I just got the word rapid. N- not rapid, but rapid, <laughs> quickly. And I got a sense that there's something happening in your life right now that is very rapid, very quickly. And it feels a bit intense. But I, I just want to tell you, I think it's from the Lord. He's in the middle of that. And what's happening in your life right now is his guidance. And, and then I got a word for uh, um, Paul and Sandy, uh, you know, from Mandalay. I just saw a picture of waves, you know, not like a big tsunami, but a lot of small waves uh, that is actually rising the water. And I, I just got a sense, I want to encourage you that there is a, a rising of water in your life and in, in the ministry that you're working in right now. And God is in that. Hmm. Amen. Amen. I uh, had a word for you, Zonda, uh, if I can just say, coming out of Romans 8, and I was reading that this morning, thinking about you again. And the Lord just wants to say he's delighted in the passion that you're exercising in your career in terms of ecology. Love for nature, for, for nature, and the, and the release of the gospel's implications in nature. Bless you. The Lord just wants to speak uh, affirmation over you and, and over Samantha as well. Bless the two of you. Amen. Also had a word I jotted down about uh, uh, the Lord wants to release us, and this week has been one of, the, one of his wish list issues for us, to be released from passivity. It's come through a few times, even when we were being led in worship today. To worship with all that we are. Hey? Um, sin entered the world because of masculine passivity. We can't blame Eve because Adam was present but silent. And to this day, if men have an emasculated spirituality, the church won't come to its fullness. Correlate with what Dave was saying a moment ago. I believe God wants to stir up a, a new courage to take steps that uh, will move us away from passivity and uh, put us in a far better place. I also just said another word about failure. The Lord wants to, sometimes we, we become passive because we're frozen from past failure. And you know what? A righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. It's not that you fall. It's can you believe God for rising again? And will you embrace that? Will you rise again? No matter, you might have failed in marriage. Strange to say, you've been through a divorce. That might be the way God is equipping you to be a marriage counselor. Huh? You might have seen the implications of being married as, as someone who's compromised virginity. And, and now in your marriage, you realize belatedly the effects of that. And so you've learned through your own experience, interacting with the gospel and the operation of forgiveness, that there's a better way. And so you become a mentor to young people again. So there's many ways that God wants to use our failure to equip us. The University of Failure is a great place to be well equipped for ministry. I feel the Lord wants to give us that. 
And lastly, I, I jotted down a quote from John Chrysostom, one of the great fathers of the, of the church from centuries back. He said, find the door of your heart. You will discover it is the door of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the gateway to you and me rising up and owning the fullness of our sense of purpose. This is why I was birthed, why I've been loved, why I've been raised. There's a connection between purpose and joy. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Amen. You have been listening to the Vineyard Nordic Podcast. For more information, please visit the Vineyard Nordic's website, vineyardnordic.org. 